Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you um, are doing well, and I know that all of you um, out there are probably eager to know uh, when is Kirk going to be on the air again next. Well, there's good news to report uh, tonight. I am back on the air uh, with another uh, podcast segment episode to the Victory With No Name, uh, the Native American Defeat of the First American Army. And um, this uh, upcoming uh, podcast segment episode, it will be uh, part two of two uh, behind uh, recriminations and reversal. So uh, from the previous uh, podcast segment, I do recall um, talking to you all about uh, just how just how deadly the uh, results were with the, um, not just so much with the attack from uh, November uh, 4th of 1791, but also how the United States government needed to learn uh, from what happened on that date, and also where the accountability uh, factor or factors came into place as well. You know, yes, uh, the United States Republic at this time is very young, it is an experiment still, even though we've um, created a constitution, and yes, we call ourselves a democracy or a republic, as the late Benjamin Franklin said to those um, whom were um, curious, or I should say curious onlooker, onlookers, uh, Benjamin Franklin said to them, you know, it's, called, it's going to be called a republic, but it's up to you all as to whether or not you can keep it. In other words, you all may be able to keep it in the present, but what about for future generations? So here we are just a couple of years into the uh, Young Republic's existence, and we um, failed on the first uh, go-around in terms of, um, you know, here we are as a, um, a nation, but yet we have uh, failed in terms of um, trying, to, um, trying to defeat... Um, peoples whom have not only uh, lived on land for hundreds or maybe in some cases uh, thousands of years before our arrival, and here we are trying to thwart them off of their land, and yet we have been routed, largely in part because we did not, um, we did not uh, take a different style of um, fighting approach. We were caught off guard from start to finish, it seemed like. So, in part two of two, to uh, recriminations and reversal, we're going to uh, find out if, in fact, the United States government is going to take a different approach to its fighting. But we're also going to find out whom is going to be the new um, leader of the United States Army. And we're going to find out if, in fact, this new leader of the United States Army uh, is going to do um, tactics or uh, strategies that are far different than what Arthur St. Clair and his predecessor, Brigadier General um, uh, Stephen uh, Harmer, um, engaged in. That um, and and by doing so, we'll, if we by figuring that out, we'll come to the realization as to just how far uh, the United States. Um, Republic has moved from a militaristic uh, standpoint. Now, I, I meant to say Brigadier General Josiah Harmer earlier, so, so do uh, forgive me if I uh, messed up there. Uh, we will also learn in this uh, podcast uh, segment episode as to whether or not the Indian Confederacy that prevailed on November 4th of 1791 is still going to be uh, strong 
you know, you would think that, okay, if the Indian Confederacy that prevailed on November 4th, 1791, if they all came together, that they would, that they would all have the same, um, what do you call it, unification. They would have the same um, adherences to, um, to what they stood for, not only in that battle, but going forward. We just have to wonder, you know, it's one thing to be unified at one time, we do have to wonder, is this unification going to last long term? So we have a lot to uh, find out in part two of two uh, behind uh, recriminations and uh, reversal. So uh, let's get this show on the road with our uh, first uh, leadoff question. Was the forecast for Indian stability within the Northwest Territory meant to be permanently sound following their unprecedented route against the first American army? What do you think was the forecast for Indian stability within the Northwest Territory? Do you think it was meant to be permanently sound following their unprecedented route against the First American Army? I think most people would say yes, but it turns out, folks, that the answer is, is no. How so? I mean, they had it really good. I thought they did. Well, for starters... The close gatherings of Indian populations led to further problems regarding food distribution. Given that a recent river flood ruined many crops, thus depleting their harvests. Well, it's one thing for Indians to convene. And usually in times past when they convened, it was for short-term purposes. But given that a war is going on, they know that this is not going to be the first, and it's probably not going to be the last time that they're going to have to deal with the United States Army trying to encroach upon their territory. But when you get large Indian um, tribes together, some coming from the outside uh, and banding um, northward into Ohio territory, we're not just talking about three or five tri tribes. We could be talking about a dozen or more tribes all in close quarters and what are they having to compete for, folks? Food. You know, it's not like there's a grocery store nearby that, oh, we can just go pick up food anytime we want and, and we'll be okay. It doesn't work that way. So, you know, just like in today's world, uh, farmers, you know, just when it looks like they're going to get a, a good harvest, all of a sudden bad a bad rainstorm comes in and it can ruin, say, three-fourths of their harvest. Well, what do you know? A bad, um, what do you call it? A bad uh, weather um, incident occurred. You know, uh, river flooding, and and it occurred uh, to where it was so bad that um, many crops are um, damaged and the harvests are depleted. So, think about Indian families where there are twelve and fifteen people, and your crops have been um, depleted. How are you going to feed? Um, your family members as as we're transitioning from fall and, and possibly into winter. So th there's a lot of uh, unknowns right there. Uh, secondly, with winter now in swing, okay, now that we're switching over from, from fall to winter, the current and existing snowfall total amounts prevented Indian warriors from hunting, thus leading to more setbacks or I should say starvation amongst Indian families. So 
if the weather is so bad uh, to the point where you have um, heavy snowfall, it's, it could hinder your ability to uh, effectively go into the woods and hunt uh, game, uh, wild game, because a majority of those larger game animals, most notably uh, bear, are going to be hibernating for the winter. So, you know, it's one thing to be partaking in a war, but if you are, um, but if your um, progress, or not so much your progress, but if your, um, but if your schedule has been uh, disrupted to where normally you would be out hunting for food in preparation for winter, and now all of a sudden you are having to put that off because you're fighting, it could come back in the long run and have um, some uh, some form of negative consequence. Now, during the Revolutionary War, Indians had come to the side of Britain for assistance. Uh, the vast majority of the Indian tribes did. So, here the Indians have come to the... Uh, during the American Revolutionary War, they were coming to the side of the uh, British for assistance. Given that they were needing assistance, the Indians are now asking for a return of assistance. In other words, they're asking the British to do their part. You know, we won't burn bridges with you, but if you're not careful, then bridges could be burned if you don't come to our assistance, you know. You know, because after all, you know, aren't the British the ones that have promised the Indians that they would be protecting them from an American invasion? Not just so much an American invasion, but perhaps the Northwest Territory being a buffer state. In other words, its own independent state that uh, would not only be, uh, that not only would get protection from the British, but the British would also prevent any American invasion northward into Canada. And and if the uh, British do come to uh, their promises and say, hey, you know, we will protect those Indian nations along the northwest frontier, that means that the United States would no longer be able to um, establish any new uh, states uh, west of the Mississippi and also, but most notably, west of the Appalachians. So, yes, you would think that um, that the British would have followed the precedent of the Indians, or the Indians' precedent, given that during the Revolutionary War, the Indians had come to the side of the British for assistance. The Indians are now asking for return of assistance. Uh, villages and towns along the Maumee River are deemed um, no longer, they are no longer deemed safe. In other words, they are no longer... Um, they are no longer properly uh, suitable for um, for living because of the uh, recent um, river floods that have um, occurred that led to the uh, depletion of harvests. And so as a result of this, where do the Indians go now? If, uh, if, the, Maumee, if, if the Maumee River is no longer safe per the villages and towns that many of these tribes lived along, they have to go northward, folks. Not into Canada, but into a Detroit, uh, what we know as uh, present-day Detroit, Michigan, uh, or a Fort Detroit. Even if they go there, folks, they could be in competition with other Indian tribes already in Fort Detroit, whom are getting protection from the British. So, you know, it's one thing for the British to have made this promise that, yes, we're going to look after you all, but how many mouths are they going to need to feed? 
Well, after uh, November 4th, 1791, there were cracks forming within the Indian Confederacy, most notably a lack of unity. The U.S. government wasted little time by going forward and working to expose divisions amongst the Indian Confederacy in the Northwest. The U.S. government sent messages to the Six Nations, and that being the Iroquois, um, the Greater Iroquois Confederacy that made up the uh, Onondaga, Oneida, Canandaigua, Seneca, Cayuga, and Tuscarora. Uh, the U.S. government sent messages to the Six Nations, including Southern Indians advising them, of course, Southern Indians being like the Creeks, Choctaws, Cherokees. So, of course, the Southern Indians received messages advising them that the United States was in the midst of revamping its mission to crush all hostile tribes in the Northwest, mostly those Western uh, tribes, Western tribes right along the Ohio-Indiana line, maybe even Ohio-Michigan as well. President Washington and War Secretary Henry Knox helped oversee an alliance preservation with the Six Nations through the help of uh, Joseph Brandt, uh, the Mohawk leader. Yeah, so uh, Oneida, on and Oneida, Mohawk, Canandaigua, Seneca, Cayuga, and Tuscarora. Sometimes I, I will admit, people, I do get one of those tribes um, miss. Um, I, I do for, forget about one of their names, but uh, but the Mohawk are part of that uh, Iroquois nation. So, yes, the uh, the United States government. Um, was able to help oversee an alliance preservation with the Six Nations through the help of Joseph Brandt, who was the uh, head Mohawk leader. The greater mission at hand, or I should say at stake, involved making peace with the Western tribes. In April of 1792, a colonel by the name of John Hardin and a major by the name of Alexander Truman went west via orders from Henry Knox to persuade Indians into a new approach. But neither man made it into uh, the territory of the Western tribes or into their villages or towns, I should say. Both were killed and scalped by Indians. It's one thing to send a couple of people in thinking that just a few people could make all the difference in the world, but who's to say they'll come out alive? And, and, we, and of course, they don't know for sure if these two men even, well, they obviously didn't make it to their final destination, but still, it's the risk that was taken it's also a, a terrible price that was uh, paid for. What did Congress enact on March 5th of 1792? Congress passed uh, legislation overseeing the expansion of the U.S. military, including a greater presence per larger numbers along the frontier. So now Congress is taking things another step to where uh, the U.S. military needs to be expanded and there needs to be an even greater presence along the frontier, not just for defensive purposes, but on offense as well. So uh, with this uh, legislative overhaul, uh, two infantry regiments and, and an artillery uh, battalion already in place were to be put into full strength Three extra regiments of 906 men each, so that's 2,718 men total. You do the math, 906 times 3, that's 2,718. 
this um, this number of men were to be enlisted for one three-year term, not going over the max limit until the U.S. until the U.S. considered itself to be in full peace with Indians. Even that would have been a chore unto itself, but this is the, what do you call it, it may not be the most perfect legislation, but it's better than what Congress had enacted previously, in my opinion. So uh, War Secretary Knox crafted up a plan for an army of more than 5,000 to be enlisted for three years. Uh, President Washington and uh, Secretary of War uh, Henry Knox divided 5,120 men into four sublegions. Any of you all know what sublegions are? They are, um, it's another word for subdivisions. Each unit would have up to 1,280 men led by brigadier generals. All sublegions were placed into two battalions, eight companies of infantry, or uh, one battalion being that of four companies comprised of uh, riflemen, artillery, and um, a troop of dragoons. And these new modifications alone helped um, improve uh, tactical movement. How much money do you think the government issued in 1792 to fund this new army? How about a million dollars? But we have to remember to fund, um, to reinvent uh, the U.S. Army in 1792 for a million dollars, that was a lot of money back then. I can only imagine... How much it would be in today's time, probably, you know, somewhere, I don't know about billions, but obviously well over a million, to say the least. So, yes, with, um, it's not just so much a million dollars to fund a new army, but it has to include some other things. Most notably, in more supplies that would help better train this new army, unlike the armies under the command of Brigadier General Brigadier General Josiah Harmer, and General Arthur St. Clair. And yes, I think we need to be reminded that even um, when there is failure, there still is a light at the end of the tunnel in terms of, um, in terms of uh, improving things and making things better than what they were uh, previously. Now, in uh, May of 1792... Two months after Congress enacted uh, legislation at the start of March, May 1792 saw Congress pass two militia acts. Uh, the first act gave the president the power to draft state militias into a federal unit per his own authority in the event the United States got invaded or faced grave danger of an invasion from a foreign nation, including Indian tribes. So to me, this is like the first big step in um, what we might think of as like national security legislation in today's time. So, you know, this first act giving the president the, the power to draft state militias into a federal unit, uh, that to me would be like the equivalent of taking the state national guards and putting them into um, into like, you know, what we think of as like the Army National Guard or calling out, say, say anywhere from like 300 to 500 National Guardsmen um, being uh, sent to a particular state uh, because of a natural disaster in today's time. That's what I'm thinking of. The uh, second act called for establishment of state militias 
This required free white male citizens of each state between 18 and 45 to enlist and be armed with, uh, with various essentials from a musket, a strong bayonet, a knapsack, uh, a box with up to 24 cartridges. I can honestly say that I, I think uh, America right now in 1792 is making a lot of good strides, despite knowing that that November 4th, 1791 might as well be considered a day that, live, that lived forever in infamy in the young republic's existence. In some ways, it kind of was like a 9-11 of its time. You know, here, Brigadier, here, um, General Anthony St. General Arthur St. Clair, pardon me, uh, he, he was very um, skeptical about the mission that he was uh, assigned to, but yet he knew that he couldn't let President Washington and War Secretary Henry Knox down, but yet he was going into uncharted territory where he thought that he could outsmart the Indians, and it turns out that the Indians were the ones that outsmarted him and his um, and what was left of his army, and knowing that just over 600 men died, and to this day it still marks one of the deadliest confrontations where Indians uh, prevailed in a battle uh, killing that n many number of um, American troops. So really, in a sense, it is, I don't know if I would say November 4th, 1791 was considered to be a loss of innocence, but it was, to me, it would be considered a day that would live forever in infamy for its time, given that the Given just how young our uh, republic is, and two, our republic, you know, the last real war we we dealt with was um, when we were at war against the mother country, England, in the American Revolutionary War. And even though we, you know, had reason to celebrate knowing that we did defeat the world's mightiest uh, empire, we were never never really out of the woods. In other words. Are we gonna? How are we gonna go about forming our own government? And if so, how is how successful will it be? And of course, the Articles of Confederation didn't work out. And yes, it was unfortunate that we had uh, rebellions uh, where um, militias were trying to get a hold of uh, courts and prevent the courts from conducting business. To where uh, the courts, um, not just conducting general business, but but these militiamen were fearful that the courts would uh, foreclose on their farms to where these families, say in western Massachusetts, had nowhere to go. And hence, that's where you get uh, Shays' Rebellion, a.k.a. led by Mr. Daniel Shays, whom, uh, whom, uh, who was a Revolutionary War veteran, but yet did not like the fact that the government, most notably his government, uh, the Massachusetts state government was um, allowing uh, judges to proceed with um, the foreclosure of people's uh, farms whom were not able to pay their debts and had to pretty much rely on uh, a barter system, you know, where where you paid someone based upon the value of the good that you were uh, selling or that you were uh, buying in return. And many of those people obviously did not have access to gold or uh, silver, so um, the only way they could get by was paying with uh, paper money. But the bottom line is that these re rebellions like Shays' Rebellion 
were the straw that broke the camel's back that led George Washington to say, hey, look, you know, we've got to do something better than what we have here, because if we don't, we will fall into anarchy to where the United States might as well not even exist as this, as a nation. We might as well, if we're this bad off, we could almost be forced to go back to being subjects to the crown. So, Yes, uh, it is very fair to say that the United States has made a lot of progress now in the last six months since uh, the debacle from November 4th of 1791, especially with uh, three pieces of legislation, one in March and then uh, two from, uh, from the month of May. Congress provided uh, the president with unlimited powers to raise troops and send them into action without requesting Congress's consent for declaration of war. Now, that's interesting that that was um, noted in 1792 because most of us should know by now that the President of the United States does not have the authority to declare war. That answer is Congress. Congress has the power to as to whether or not war should be declared against a foreign nation if it is deemed uh, necessary to do so. And not to get ahead of the game, folks, but... Um, for those of you who, how do I say it? Yes, when we uh, declared our independence from Britain, we um, called ourselves the, the new United States. Well, yes, we had a, um, a Congress, but, they, but we didn't declare war on England, and it might be, have been fair to say that we were already at war with England prior to July 4th of 1776, but there's only been five times in the history, in the 236-year uh, uh, history of the American government, based upon when the Constitution was established, that uh, Congress has declared war, and that was on uh, five occasions. The first one being the War of 1812, uh, America's Second War for Independence, uh, the Mexican-American War, the Spanish-American War, uh, from which we entered into in 1898, and World Wars One and Two. So, so if any if any of you have forgotten just how many times Congress has had to, to declare war, just think of uh, the number five, five times. But interesting enough, yes, in 1792, um, that Congress that the president did not need um, Congress's consent for declaration of war, but of course. The Constitution, given how old, given how young it is, and just how young America's Republic is, even in 1792, I think it's fair to say that our forefathers knew that as time progressed that uh, things would change and the Constitution could still uh, manage to be an effective governing document. Uh, whom did uh, President Washington appoint or select to go about establishing a more reformed army which could prevail in Indian territory a.k.a. The, nor uh, the Northwest. Yeah, I'm sure some of you are wondering, uh, who does President Washington have up his sleeve that he knows is reliable and can get the job done, that can actually reinvent how warfare might need to be um, played out on the um, Northwest frontier? His name is General Anthony Wayne, who is a Revolutionary War veteran he went by the nickname of Mad Anthony. Why Mad Anthony? Well, he, he got this nickname during the Revolutionary War. His nickname came about due to his fierce temper. 
I don't think I'd want to be in his way. Uh, you know, he might not be one of those people I'd want to upset. But General Wayne was an officer whom opposed uh, line formation, a.k.a. standard tactical formation, which had been designed for volley fire, where soldiers were placed next to one another, and when they f fired in a volley, their, their objective was to knock down as many um, soldiers from the opposition army 50 to 100 yards away. Well, there's nothing. there may not be anything wrong with that 100%, but... For, Ant for General Anthony Wayne, this is not going to be the way to fight Indians. In other words, if we're going to win in the Northwest, we have to uh, fight in an uncommon manner, and that means doing this unconventionally. So if uh, General Wayne is opposed to uh, line formation, or I should say standard tactical formation, what would he uh, support instead? He supported maneuver warfare, which aims, or I should say, which aimed to expose an enemy's weaknesses versus their strengths, including attacking anything deemed vulnerable, such as a larger troop body unit or even supply lines, where over time the enemy's will and ability to fight decreases. In other words, it's not the same. Um, by the time the enemy arrives into fighting, fighting you, their opponent, they may not be 100% uh, the same if they've been knocked down a few times due to harassment, um, skirmishes, anything that would disrupt them um, short term to where their chances could have, say, for victory could have, say, gone from 100 to 75%. In other words, any kind of reduction that you can uh, partake in with uh, the enemy in terms of harassing to skirmishing to finding out everything that there could be about their weaknesses does have a psychological impact on them over time to where once that major battle can take place, there it, it could be very likely that the uh, greater force might not prevail in the end. General Wayne was determined uh, not to make the same mistakes that were made under uh, General St. Clair's uh, watch. Uh, the route, how, however, or the course that uh, General uh, Wayne um, would take his troops remained unchanged. So, in other words, it was the same route that uh, St. Clair had uh, taken. Uh, General Wayne, like St. Clair did uh, before, would go from Pittsburgh down the Ohio River to Fort Washington and upward into the Miami Valley. Unlike the previous go-around, the U.S. chose to negotiate, which meant awaiting the Indians' outcome. So we're not going to um, march into their territory right away and start firing and you know killing everyone we can get our hands on. We want to see if they will um, negotiate with us. And if they negotiate with us, then we don't, you know, we don't have to go to war with them. So late summer 1792, Indian delegates uh, gathered uh, southwest of Toledo, not far from the Maumee River at the Glies, uh, present-day Defiance, Ohio, which is uh, right along the Ohio-Indiana line. The uh, This Indian delegation uh, discussed peace proposals with the U.S. government a fellow by the name of uh, Red Jacket, who was the Seneca chief leader and diplomat, he joined uh, the Iroquois delegation in helping present an American peace offer, 
which included the, U- the U.S. government agreeing to the Muskinigum River as the boundary line. Well, okay, if if the uh, Seneca chief leader and diplomat, uh, being Red Jacket, joined the Iroquois delegation and presenting this American peace officer that's going to peace offer that's going to include the the U.S. government agreeing to the Muskinigum River as the boundary line. Don't you think the majority of the other Indians present there uh, in terms of the tribal nations would have gone along with this? Nope, they didn't. The majority of the Indians opposed the compromise given that the papers they had seized, these being the western tribes whom partook in uh, St. Clair's uh, defeat from November 4th of 1791, these tribes had seized um, papers from St. Clair's um, chest box. I mean, these are what we think of in today's time as top secret uh, personal files. But the uh, Western Indians had seized uh, these uh, papers from St. Clair's defeat, and it contained irrelevant intentions. In other words, there was never really going to be any promise of a truce. There was never going to be any real promise of peace. St. Clair had the intention of uh, going in and wanting to ransack everything that the Indians um, had preserved in terms of customs, traditions. The, the, the Western Indians are smart enough to know that, look, General Anthony Wayne can be nice all he wants to be, and he can promise us that they won't engage in any kind of um, violence, even if they think we're willing to propose um, peace. We're not going to fall for this. We know what they really want. They want to lure us, and they want to start a war, and once again, it's all going to be about land. That's what they want. They don't want just land. They want our land. Now, uh, what happenings were taking place come April of 1793? General Wayne moved his troops down the Ohio River from Pittsburgh, and American Peace Commissioners Benjamin Lincoln, uh, a former uh, Revolutionary uh, War officer, Timothy Pickering, and Beverly Randolph went north to meet Indian nations already convened in an assembly at Lower Sandusky, uh, which is uh, southeast of present-day Toledo, Ohio. It's interesting. I know we have Sandusky to the north, which is halfway between uh, Toledo and Cleveland. Sandusky, uh, west of Sandusky being Toledo, east of Sandusky, Cleveland. And then you have uh, Lower Sandusky, just south of, southeast of Toledo. You know, uh, the, the person's name of uh, Beverly Randolph, who is one of the uh, three American Peace Commissioners, I happen to know that there is a town in West Virginia called Beverly, West Virginia. And I know this because um, Beverly, West Virginia is in Randolph County, and the college that my wife attended in West Virginia is Davis and Elkins. And Elkins, West Virginia, and Elkins is, is, Elkins is in Randolph County. Uh, Randolph County um, is one of the largest, uh, I believe it's one of the largest counties in West Virginia, and I want to say at least seven other counties uh, border uh, Randolph uh, County. I know um, a couple of them are um, Upshur, Barber, um, Barber Counties, um, Pendleton, uh, Grant, uh, Tucker, 
uh, just to name a, a few, but at least seven or eight counties uh, border uh, Randolph County. If that gives you any uh, extent of that gives you any extent of just how big of a county it is. But uh, the town of Beverly is named after Beverly Randolph, whom wasn't the governor of West Virginia, folks. He was the governor of Virginia. Remember, folks, um, there is a West Virginia, but it's not its own state. Remember, folks, in uh, 1793, Virginia goes all the way to West Virginia, and technically it could still be... At one time, it was considered to go all the way to Ohio, but in the 1780s, Virginia had ceded her land in what we know as present-day Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois, Michigan. Virginia ceded all that land to to the new federal government. But the state that that um, that is not in existence, um, being West Virginia, uh, that actually was uh, considered to be uh, Virginia. So, so anyways, uh, Beverly, uh, West Virginia. Whenever you hear Beverly, West Virginia, think of uh, Beverly Randolph, and Beverly Randolph was uh, related to the Randolphs of Virginia. 16. Why is the number 16 special or unique, folks? That's the total number of Indian nations whom gathered at the entrance of the Maumee Rapids, which was home to um, Alexander uh, McKee, or it was the home of his uh, storehouse, Alexander McKee's storehouse. I know there is a place in Pennsylvania called McKee's Rocks outside of Pittsburgh, so I am thinking that McKee's Rocks might be connected to Mr. Alexander McKee. Now, this is where things get a little dicey here. Um, Mr. Alexander McKee has been accused by Joseph Brandt of trying to lessen, or I should say, undermine peace talks. Joseph Brandt has proposed ceding all land east of the Muskinigam River, but his case has little support, given Indians whom defeated St. Clair's army were convinced they already had the upper hand in the Ohio Territory, Ohio Nation. Well, if I'm one of these Indian tribes uh, whom had partaken in, uh, whom, or I should say, whom partook in, in defeating St. Clair's army, I would say that, um, that we already have the upper hand. Why, why do we want to give the, the U.S. government territory, or I should say land, east of the Muskinigam River? Sure, there could still be boundaries, but who's to say that if we placed a boundary as to where the settlement lines um, stood, who's not to say that the government would go a little bit further west and continue um, engaging in manipulative practices that would lead to another confrontation? So for for the Indian tribes that defeated St. Clair's army, this is like their version of Custer's last stand. Look, we've defeated them. We've got the upper hand on this. Um, Mr. Brandt, don't give in to the government anymore because it's a never-ending cycle. Just when we think we've made peace with them, we really have not. Uh, two, the number two in this case, was the total number of weeks where Indians and commissioners sent messages to one another but it resulted in no compromises. The Indians wanted the Ohio River boundary restored, including the U.S. settlements uh, north of the river 
uh, removed, for Indians, peace alone could not exist knowing white settlers already had been living on their ancestral lands, and the breakdown in talks led to an eventual change in course being one where an invasion under General Anthony Wayne's helm would be necessary and proper. Look, General Wayne actually really doesn't want to go to war. He'd like to see um, Indians and uh, peace commissioners, being that of uh, Benjamin Lincoln, Timothy Pickering, and Beverly Randolph, all come to some form of uh, compromise that could avoid a war. Or another um, unnecessary confrontation uh, where where you know there's no guarantee that maybe the US army would come away victorious knowing that we've already lost twice so there there's a lot at stake here now uh did american troops under general wayne's uh command build a fort yes they did uh between late 1793 and into the spring or march of uh 1794 general wayne's troops um went about constructing a fort around the site where General St. Clair's forces got routed. The fort became known as Fort Recovery, located within uh, two miles of the present-day state border with Indiana. Fort Recovery would be uh, north of uh, Dayton, in case any of you all are wondering just how, um, you know, yes, it's only two miles from the state line, but what major city is there um, that is in proximity to Fort Recovery, and it turns out that Dayton uh, being south of uh, Fort Recovery. So um, with this new fort, um, artillery and riflemen companies occupied Fort Recovery uh, during the winter of 1793 and uh, 1794. Well, with all the um, new uh, revamping of the U.S. Army, which is really, really great. I mean, yes, it's unfortunate that over 600 men lost their lives in a battle that probably never should have happened. And I'm thinking that even though, yes, for President Washington, yes, staying the course is an important thing, but but we have to wonder if the President of the United States really did uh, regret this um, decision, knowing just how late in the year it occurred, and two, uh, the, the whole logistics debacle, I mean, but this is where, you know, we have to learn from our mistakes because sometimes when um, when disasters or unfortunate uh, episodes like what happened on November 4th of 1791 um, took place, the bigger question uh, going forward is how are we going to be a stronger nation? And, and, I, and I can tell you this much, I know that... Um, that the relations between uh, the government and the Indians weren't always the best. And I'm not trying to get into anything political, um, but this is where, I mean, we are learning about stuff that, you know, is sensitive. And, and I, and I do know that, yes, there are, there are a lot of things in uh, history that aren't uh, pleasant, but I do know that there have been a lot of unpleasantries in history since the beginning of time. Uh, but the most important thing is to, you know, to learn about those unpleasantries as best as you can. And obviously you would want to make sure that whatever unpleasantries had occurred, whether it was say 500 years before you arrived um, into the world, learning about what happened say 400, 500 years ago and, and making sure that based upon what you've learned, knowing what it is 
that can be done to ensure that the event that happened 500 years ago, for example, knowing that it was not a good event, just making sure what all we can take from it so that it doesn't repeat itself. Those are the kinds I th- those are the kinds of things I learn all the time at Williamsburg, where um, actors and actresses uh, they portray a certain character, and they tell the audience about um, the times that they live in, and how they take the times that they lived in the from when they were uh, living, and take that into a present day setting and help us as a, as an audience understand not only the time that they lived in, but how we can take whatever they experienced and not only learn from it, but um, but understand why things were different they, the way they were. I'm not trying to get on a tangent here, but it's just one of those things we have to be constantly reminded of, uh, because as Thomas Jefferson said, education uh, was the key to a uh, successful democratic society. And of course, I know one could say, well, you know, that obviously could have been interpreted much differently compared to what we might think of in today's world. But it was also meant to lay a foundation for how the young republic would evolve over uh, the course of time, not only in its present day, but for but for how future generations would um would take um, would take the helm in uh, in ensuring that um, that uh, that the uh, republic itself would um, survive. Given as Benjamin Franklin said, it may not the constitution that we've created or this new governing document we've created. It may not be the best government or the best system, but it's the best we could come up with, and it's up to you all as to whether or not you can keep it. But anyways, uh, back to what we need to uh, focus on so that we don't lose. Uh, track of time. Uh, the British uh, have counter-responded fort-wise by building Fort Miami along the banks of the Maumee River. In February of 1794, Sir Guy Carleton, uh, known as Lord Dorchester, told an Indian delegation in Quebec that war between Britain and the United States was inevitable. And it really was. Uh, June 30th of 1794 saw um, Indians launch... Um, a surprise attack against American dragoons at Fort Recovery, but they were driven back by American artillery firings, forcing tribes from the Ottawa, Ojibwa, to the Potawatomi and retreating back north. General Wayne was in control of an army geared for battle along the Ohio country, which meant his troops were well-disciplined. 2,200 regular infantry force backed up with 1,500 mounted Kentucky militia serving as rangers under General Charles Scott. General Wayne went after Indian villages and food supplies along the Aglaise River. August of 1794 saw General Wayne oversee the building of Fort Defiance. At the point, or I should say section, where the Maumee and the Aglaise Rivers met. Um, was the Indian Confederacy starting to unravel in the midst of um, progress made by General Wayne's uh, troop forces? Yes, uh, for starters, um, American diplomacy had brought about uh, further tribal divisions and warriors. Previously enchanted from November 4th of 1791, were now returning home in a state of uncertainty. 
Indian resistance movement further hampered come mid-August 1794 due to a tornado leaving the area around what is called fallen timbers covered with uprooted trees. Well, you know, history has shown that weather has played a um, significant impact in uh, whether or not one side prevails and the other um, gets defeated. And I'm beginning to think that because of this uh, recent um, storm, that with so many uprooted trees, that that will hinder the Indians' means of getting to where they need to be, not just so much getting to where they need to be, but it might hinder their means of being able to launch a surprise attack against American uh, troops. August 20th, 1794, uh, the battle engagement takes place at Fallen Timbers, which is uh, located um, right uh, right in the heart of uh, Maumee, Ohio, along the Maumee River. The Indian Army uh, once again lined up in a crescent formation like they had done previously uh, when defeating St. Clair's Army. But despite pushing back militiamen forces, the American regulars held their lines and advanced forward against the Indians with bayonet charges, forcing the Indians into a mass retreat. You know, St. Clair's, uh, the route of the um, First American Army in, under St. Clair's uh, um, helm, nothing went right from the, for the Americans, even despite the intelligence uh, communication breakdown. Uh, nothing went right, but... But this, uh, but these bayonet charges are proving to be very powerful because, you know, when you launch a bayonet charge, you know that you've got your opponent in a, a state of uh, panic and a state of fear. And yes, for the Indians, they thought that they um, were going to uh, engage in another slam dunk victory. But it's not so much that the uh, regulars had their bayonets lined up; it was that they were prepared. They were prepared to go in the event of an Indian rally cry came about. They weren't going to uh, panic and drop everything like what happened uh, three years before. So it's this time now, folks, that the Indians are on the run. They sought refuge or shelter at Fort Miami. That's the British fort. Folks, I have some terrible news to tell you if you're of that of the Indians. The British troops stationed there, stationed at Fort Miami, denied their request, denied every Indian um, whom uh, was seeking refuge and shelter. Their requests, their request was denied. So the gates uh, were, remained locked when it came to uh, denying them general assistance. Why would the British do this? if they were so um, intent on wanting to keep the U.S. out of uh, the Northwest. Well, it turns out, folks, that Britain is at war with another nation, being her arch-nemesis rival, France. Britain doesn't want another conflict with the United States. Is it because she's afraid that she might lose? I don't think it's so much that. It's, But what Britain doesn't want to lose is... She doesn't want to lose her um, supremacy along the Great Lakes. She doesn't want to lose that, and she doesn't want to lose her um, 
trading, um, or she doesn't want to lose her status with uh, Indian traders. But if you've denied uh, multiple Indian uh, tribal uh, nations the means of uh, seeking shelter, refuge at Fort Miami, then chances are you're not going to have uh, probably uh, good um, long-term um, trading relation establishments with the uh, Indian traders, especially those whom have married into Indian families. So we could be starting to see some signs of uh, unraveling within the greater communities. The American army burned um, multiple Indian villages and cornfields along uh, land sloping down towards the Aglais and Maumee rivers. In September of 1794, General Wayne marched his army back up the Maumee River, where they began constructing a fort on the site of Kekionga. The fort became known as Fort Wayne in tribute to General Anthony Wayne. And folks, you know, Fort Wayne, Indiana is in northeast Indiana, not far from the Indiana-Ohio line. So this go-around, folks, the U.S. Army did get into, um, into uh, the village of Kekionga, unlike General um, Arthur St. Clair's uh, forces, whom were just over, over 40 miles south of Kekionga. They never got, they never got to that uh, promised land spot. While younger warriors sought to keep the fight alive against the U.S. Army and the government, elder Indian chiefs sought peace over further warfare. The summer of 1795 saw chiefs from the Northwest uh, Confederacy, whom oversaw two failed American invasions of, the Ohio, of Ohio, go about signing away southern and eastern two-thirds of Ohio, and when I think of Southern Ohio, think of like Cincinnati. Eastern Ohio, you might think of like uh, Youngstown. So small track, and this included small tracts of land in Indiana, as well as a site that became the future city of Chicago, Illinois. The 1795 Treaty was of Greenville. That's what it was known as. It was signed on August 3rd. It ended violence or fighting briefly. It limited. Um, Indian country to Northwest Ohio, which resulted in the regular practice of payments to Indian tribes. The present to Indian tribes present at the treaty, the Northwest Indian War in the Ohio country ended the frontier in in the Northwest Territory, uh, being uh, completely closed. Uh, the American side delegation for this treaty I thought was interesting. It consisted not only of General Anthony Wayne, but um, who was the leader of it, but in, it included uh, signers, most notably uh, a fellow named Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, who would go on to lead that famed expedi expedition that uh, went from the um, that went that started in St. present-day St. Louis, Missouri and went all the way to the uh, Pacific Coast. Another signer who was there, uh, was a 21-year-old fellow named uh, William Henry Harrison, who would one day go on to become uh, president of the United States. So a lot of people who were present at this treaty were uh, starting to work their way up uh, the ladder to um, accomplishing um, bigger things. Well, uh, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, podcast uh, topic, um, or this podcast segment episode, I should say, 
And it is fair to say that the United States Republic has come a long way in the, in, in the course of three years. Thanks to, um, you know, having to uh, reinvent the way um, war was to be fought along the frontier. And, um, you know, it might be fair to say had Washington not selected uh, Anthony Wayne, I'm not sure that whomever else could have been appointed might have uh, followed um, in Anthony Wayne's footsteps to where we to where the third time around was would have been a charm given that the first two ended in a disaster. Well, uh, thank you for your time as always. And when I'm on the air again next, uh, we will be um, talking about the epilogue to the victory with no name, the American defeat of the first American army. So yes, folks, when I'm on the air again next, we will be at on our final um, podcast um, segment episode to the series. It's been uh, quite a unique ride, to say the least. And I'm sure many of you all have learned a great deal about what lied uh, west of the Appalachians that you didn't know before in terms of territory establishment, or territorial establishment, I should say, and how it was just not um, automatically handed to us as a nation. Yes, we did have to go to war over it, but you know Congress didn't declare war on it. So uh, thank you uh, for your time as always, and I look forward to being on the air next time, and uh, thank you all for being such ardent listeners. Uh, Take care and uh, stay safe wherever you all may live.